if you have a show that isn't accessible, we may still program you. But at the time, my daughter was like two, my, my two-year-old daughter. And I, I broke down in, in tears. And like for me, like I'm the kind of person, like if I'm afraid of something, I develop a curiosity about it. They can be like, oh, yeah, well, we didn't specifically say this or this, so it's okay. And they can get away with that crap when they say, oh, there's still more work to be done and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, we know there's more work to be done. There's, there's power in uncertainty. Nathan Gearing, co-artistic director of Theatre Delhi, chief exec of Rational Arts, accessibility innovator, TEDx speaker, published author, award-winning filmmaker director of the Special Olympics opening ceremony, the list goes on. I learned a lot in the short time speaking with Nathan, and I think you will too. I learned more deeply about access and the practical things that we can do to start making our art more accessible. I learned about the courage it takes to stand up on your own as an artist and be your authentic self, and also how to make sure you're on the right path as an artist. And I also learned how Nathan has gone from a kid on a council estate watching kung fu movies to becoming one of the first black artistic directors in this country. This conversation felt important to have and I'm glad I was part of it and I'm glad you're about to listen to it. This is the director's diary. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary so if you're listening to this keep it close and use it well. So Nathan welcome to the podcast it's amazing to have you on. Well happy to be here. So, tradition for the podcast, for all special guests, is to tell us your life story. Um, I'm going to give you two minutes. Um, so, for those who don't know who you are, what's your life story? Okay, so uh, my name is Nathan Gearing. I was born in Ipswich, um, and I spent a lot of time there living uh, with my mother and my grandmother. Uh, I used to watch old school kung fu movies as a as, as a child, uh, which ended up formulating a lot of my kind of like uh, outlook and perspective on lives because a lot of the I guess the Eastern philosophy that was involved within that. Uh, then moved up to Chesterfield when I was eight, and then studied and did a degree in uh, psychology and a high national diploma in business and marketing um, at Sheffield Hallam University. Moved to Sheffield, fell in love with the city. And then I became a, a professional uh, performer after discovering breaking whilst at university. So rolled around on the floor, spun on my head for a while. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I said to myself, right, uh, for one month, I want to do what I, what I love once I finish my degree. And almost like 20 odd years later, I'm still here doing, doing what I love. Uh, within that context, I have done a lot of performance. Um, both nationally and internationally. Um, I am also an accessibility innovator. So I have done a lot of groundbreaking work with looking at uh, making different forms of accessibility uh, more in engaging um, to people with disabilities. I was the artist director of the Special Olympics opening ceremony. Um, I'm a multi-award winning uh, filmmaker, published author, uh, TEDx speaker. Um, and yeah, I also uh, am co-artistic director of uh, Theatre Delhi. I run both uh, Sheffield and London venues. I am a, uh, um, a commissioner on the Sheffield Race Equality Commission as well. And uh, I'm an activist and my ethos is about making uh, art um, accessible uh, for all. I also run a registered charity called Rational Arts, which has that same ethos. 
Um, and yeah, just always trying to bridge the gap between uh, disabled and non-disabled uh, artists and audiences. Um, and I always listen to my authentic self. That's me in a nutshell. Awesome. So much, so much uh, to unpick. Um, <laughs> Let's get back to Ipswich. Let's get back to Kung Fu movies. That's that sounds amazing. So, just talk us through what what was your childhood like? What was what was kind of upbringing? How did you what could could you talk about kind of a first moment with theatre or performing that you kind of sparks? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, I um, I grew up in a in a council estate in in, in Ipswich um, up until the age of eight years old. Um, like I, like I said, a, a lot of time I spent uh, with my, my, my grandmother and, and uh, uh, my uncles and aunties, as well as obviously my, my mother. Um, and yeah, we just grew up watching old school kung fu films. And with the black community, kung fu film movies, they really kind of like resonate because kung fu, movie, kung fu cinema is just literally the cinema of the underdog. Um, and that is so normally you have somebody who is kind of like uh, oppressed and downtrodden and then utilizing nothing but hard work and determination and usually just their hands, they end up uh, overcoming their oppressors. So a lot of people uh, within, um, you know, black and ethnic minority communities could, could relate to that. Um, and so hence why like, you know, Bruce Lee and uh, Jackie Chan, um, they were all kind of like, you know, really uh, massive uh, ins inspirations. And like I said, there was a lot of uh, philosophy that was um, embedded in those in those kung fu movies, and and so yeah, they kind of like formulated uh, my, my life. Um, in terms of like theatre, I don't really have any um, like early early memories of actually like going to the theatre. Um, I used to do like plays as a child um, in school, and I'd always kind of like get picked for the leading roles in those plays and, and stuff. Um, but in terms of like actual theater um it was probably when i was um at, um at university um I, the first uh, theater production i remember seeing was a rennie harris show called uh, students of the asphalt jungle i believe it, i believe it was it was a hip-hop theater show um yeah thought it was incredible um but my first kind of like real taste of theater uh was uh when I was uh, down in London and I kind of like got spotted by a guy called John Z D who's based at Salaswell's theater and runs breaking convention. Um, and he asked me to basically come down and uh, audition for his company. And I was lucky enough to uh, get the role. Um, and so we were based at Salaswell's theater and um, did a, a show called tag. Um, I was one of the original cast members of tag and uh, yeah, we went on a, on a, on a national tour. That's awesome. This is before you did your degree. So, so my degree came round about just after after that. Um, no, no, so my, my degree came just just bef just before that. So I'd finished my degree. I'd yeah. done like some freelance dance teaching, um, and then there was a bunch of kids that I used to teach. And I took them down to London for a breaking competition, and John Z saw me at this breaking competition, um, and then yeah, asked me to kind of like uh, audition and join his company. So yeah, I'd, I'd finished my my degree in psychology at the, at the time. Uh, if you want to get into a little bit more depth within that whole process, like I, um, I discovered, uh, I discovered breaking probably in my second year of uh, the my psychology degree, and I realised early on that in order to get 
you, your mark, you didn't have to attend um, lectures because they were just regurgitating the information that was just put on the um, intranet system. So I was like, I'm not wasting my time with that. So you only had to go to seminars in order to get your mark. So I just went to seminars, sacked off all my lectures um, and spent all my time rolling around on the floor and spinning on my head in the studio. Um, finished my degree. Um, but like I said, after that, I said, I want to do what I love for a month. And that was, uh, you know, just fully go into to, to dance and, and, and teach and breaking. And here I am now, like I say, 20 years later, still doing, still doing what I love. Maybe there's, I think there's definitely a link between the kind of Kung Fu Eastern philosophies and movement. I can see why that kind of, why you would be interested in breaking there, but is there also a link with psychology or no? Is that? Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so much, like so much that that we could talk about within all of those contexts. So, for example, like, like I said, with um, like the the like the the uh, like not only the black communities but also Latino communities, and um, they uh, really kind of like they developed uh, the art form of breaking, like in the seventies and the eighties. And again, they were watching a lot of these old school Kung Fu films at that time. So a lot of the moves from those old school Kung Fu movies actually made it into a break in. Um, so there was, they were heavily influenced, um, you know, by a lot, by a lot of those um, films and a lot of them were martial artists themselves at the time. Um, so within, uh, if you want to get deep with the psychology, like hip hop culture is just an answer to a social econo uh, economic problem in terms of a lot of the, 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 people that made breaking were kids um and they couldn't afford you know they were impoverished kids at that and they couldn't afford to go to like conservatoires or have ballet classes or contemporary classes so they basically ended up um yeah creating their own art form out on the streets um uh, known as known as known as breaking really and it's a genius art form that was created literally by impover impoverished uh, kids by by and large um and so you know a lot of breaking kind of like you know well hip-hop culture in general like it saved a lot of people's lives and you know the time you were spending rolling around the floor spinning on your head you couldn't be in gangs like you know sticking people up and things um but also it, it helped with people's like um emotional well-being and things like if they had a lot of like um aggression and energy they could channel that energy into um the art forms of of, of uh breaking another hip-hop element and is is that what you did is it, did it help you with your with your own mental health? Do you think? Is that oh, well, there's been various times it's it's helped. Um, so much so to the point where I, um, probably about a decade after I, um, yeah, yeah, over a decade actually after I, uh, finished my degree. Like I'd always wanted to see a way if there was I could formally link psychology and, and breaking. Obviously, I I did it in terms of um a lot of subtle kind of connections, but in terms of formalizing it more so i started to work with a cognitive behavioral therapist and we developed a way to treat depression anxiety and ptsd through hip-hop dance beatboxing and, and and circus skills where we combined like meditation and mindfulness techniques uh with uh those elements um and it's underpinned by acceptance commitment therapy as well um and now through my registered charity rational arts um we deliver these uh the, these sessions and we've uh, just had a scientific uh, study published from some sessions we did in primary schools last year and um, we're rolling that out uh, further and uh, when I 
that kind of like held an artistic uh, peaceful protest in in Sheffield a couple of years ago in line with kind of like the Black Lives Matter resurgence. Um, the because obviously with what happened with George Floyd, actually obviously his anniversary coming up soon. What happened with George Floyd? It unlocked a lot of trauma in in people of color, and again, seeing a lot of the insensitive kind of like uh, comments that were floating around on social media, such as like you know. Um, you know, Britain isn't racist, I don't see colour, um, slavery doesn't exist anymore, all those kinds of elements, you know, were really traumatic for, for us to, to kind of like witness. And so, um, yeah, I decided to turn that source of pain into a source of power. Um, and so what I did was I, I very early on realised that actually what I was feeling was energy in, inside me, I needed to transform that energy. And so I turned to that the art form, the acts of creativity that I developed to kind of like help me process a lot of the emotions and what I was experiencing and feeling. And what that did, that gave me enough kind of like space and clarity to understand where I need to go in terms of turning that source of pain into a source of power. Hence, I ended up uh, creating that artistic peaceful protest that ended up evoking into a lot of uh, social change within Sheffield, ended up me becoming also a part of the Race Equality Commission, which led to me creating a multi-award winning short film. Um, and now it's an education package that, uh, that, that I teach. Um, but yeah, that, that's how the, the hip hop dance and, and psychology kind of like into intertwined and ended up helping me get through some of the, the, the tougher periods with, within my life. So many questions I've got with like, with all of that. I think the main one is how does the, how does the CBT work with, like, could you just talk more about, like, the in-sessions stuff? Like, how does that, so, how does that work? Um, well, like, basically, like, you have to take the session in order to fully appreciate it. But basically, you would do the dance, um, do some basic dance movements, but connect meditation breathing techniques to them. And then within that, you would um, also acknowledge that, for example, trauma is not just stored in the head. It's stored on a cellular level. It's stored within our bodies. So you can't locate what parts in your body you feel certain discomfort when you think of certain traumatic experiences. Mm. We work on certain specific uh, techniques um, that help you move that trauma uh, through your body until, until we can release it through certain parts of your body. Um, so that's kind of like in a, in a, in a broad nutshell how, how it works. Sounds cathartic. Sounds sounds really important. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all need to do that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So um, you said in your opening um, two minutes that, and you touched on it a little bit there about being an accessibility innovator. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's there's two two hats here, isn't there? There's a kind of activism, the the race and equality and diversity, and there's also the the access, which I, I think they go hand in hand, don't they? But could we spend some time on each? So the in terms of because the, Theatre Delhi have done a lot of work recently about access and like foregrounding it as like one of the key missions for the organisation, haven't they? So since you've become co-artist director, so could you talk to me a little bit about your background there? And and so what does accessibility innovator mean? What for you? Sure. Okay. So um, for for me, like it got really tricky when people kept asking me, "What is it that you do?" And and so being me just saying, okay, I'm an artist, a director, or I'm a theatre maker, or, it just wasn't cutting it because I did like so much more. Um, so I kind of needed to almost like make up my own word, I guess. Um, and the thing, the the thread that kind of held everything together and I could connect everything with 
was that I was looking at different ways of inno innovating um, accessible accessible forms. Um, and so basically for me, accessibility innovator basically just means uh, looking at um, making different forms of accessibility more engaging in, in creative ways um, to both uh, disabled and non-disabled artists and audiences. So that's what, what I mean uh, when I say accessibility innovator. Um, there probably are other accessibility innovators out there. I think there's lots of them. Um, but in terms of that's how I how I relate to myself. That's how I formally re relate to myself. Um, so before, bef way way before Theatre Delhi, I was um, working within the realms of accessibility. Actually, pretty much my whole career. Um, in terms of, I used to work in SEN schools um, when I when I used to uh, teach um, like classes in, in the community and things. Um, you know, pretty much right from the get go with uh, me teaching teaching dance classes and, and stuff and then when I started but I didn't really consider myself as working within accessibility within that kind of context I for some reason I didn't make the link or the connection um I was I was just like okay yeah I, I'm just teaching everybody here and then it wasn't until we started to work within specifically uh exploring uh theater and, and visual impairment that I started to formally realize, oh, actually, do you know what? I, I do work firmly within accessibility as well. Um, and so within doing within doing that, we started to, my company, we started to uncover a lot of unlikely links between like uh, hip hop and visual impairment, specifically in terms of accessibility. And so I started pioneering a lot of work that had never been done across the world before in terms of hip hop and visual impairment. Um, and then, yeah, I, I I just started to look at different ways in which we could utilize elements of hip hop to um, to make uh, work more accessible, and then it just steamrolled and it just quickly became my life's work. And then so when I started to work at Theatre Delhi, I was really passionate in ensuring that okay, with the position at Theatre Delhi, I really have the opportunity to make something that can contribute towards a systemic change. Um, within theatre and arts um, in terms of the institutions um, because the you know at the time when I joined there wasn't that many people of colour in artistic director roles um, I think myself and Ryan I think we're the, the first people of colour to run two venues at once in the UK most most artist directors run one venue we run Sheffield and London venues um, but also with, <laughs> but also within that we wanted to like ensure that okay right well we we're going to make a, a commitment to to accessibility because it is important and we wanted to do that um in a way where actually it's a it's a it's a massive level up from what other institutions are doing because a lot of institutions they'll say they're committed to access but they'll be really vague about it mm -hmm. just so they can kind of like get out of certain situations and things like that so they can be like oh yeah well we didn't specifically say this or this so it's okay and they can get away with that crap when they say oh there's still more work to be done and all that kind of stuff it's like yeah we know there's more work to be done <laughs> what work are you specifically doing and what are you doing to hold yourself accountable to it so we wanted to as an organization be able to stipulate certain things that we wanted to do that we felt was achievable but also we could be held accountable because we have certain timelines for certain things. 
Um, so, so go on. So, what what other things that are kind of in the in the foreground for you at the moment with Datadelic? So, what specifically with Access? Yeah, exactly. The, the, the practical. Yeah, sure. Thing. So, so within Access, so we've just launched a, an accessibility policy, and within within our new accessibility policy, we're saying that we're giving priority to theatrical productions that um, make their work accessible to people with disabilities. And so that can be, they have an audio described production or be a cell interpreted production, or it has captioning or it's a relaxed performance or any other kind of ways in which it's made accessible to disabled audiences. Another element is uh, priorities given to productions that have a disabled performance. Um, another element is uh, priorities given to shows that have a, disabled uh, tech teams or, or, or members of the tech team. And so basically, if you can cover just one of those elements, your show gets priority in terms of programming. If you have a show that isn't accessible, um, Theatre Delhi can kind of like help you start that journey. So for example, we may still program you, but if you do take our support, within that so if you, we do programming you have to be going on an accessibility journey so for example you have to be looking into making work accessible and then the next time you you get your work program at theater delhi it has to be accessible no excuses um so we're trying to really kind of like improve the culture in terms of really getting theater makers to think about access and putting it on their radar and include it in the in the planning kind of uh process but like i say priority is given to those productions that are made accessible in one way or, an, or another. And if you are those companies that aren't accessible, what would you say that that they can do that doesn't require a lot of governance or a lot of like uh, unpaid time or, you know, all those kind of considerations that, because some of these companies um, potentially are maybe just trying to just survive bit to bit um, mm -hmm. and they don't have that kind of, ability to look forward they might want it but they they just can't they're just you know trying to get the bid in basically um yeah well i would say first and foremost like a lot of bids actually favor accessibility so right off the bat have it in your planning um because then you can actually be paid for your time but also uh special consultants time um and you know really forge relationships with uh, disabled communities as, as well because you know if you're making uh like a service it's the best the best way to research it is to get you know advice from the service users and you know they they'll also be able to help you find um like new innovative ways um to approach accessibility that may have never even been discovered before so i, I would say definitely include it into your your planning um when you're when you're writing uh, funding applications and all because also what that will do is if you're making your production um, accessible it also makes it more attractive to venues right now because more venues are wanting to be programming more accessible productions and, and things so it really it really does help to put it on your radar um you know also look at um just accessible like script writing um if you're making like you know dialogue heavy work um, look at is there ways within when you're writing your script that you could be describing the visual elements um, and again you know within within doing that that means that you know you there will be less need for example for audio description or 
Um, you may be even to get away without having audio description if you're really sophisticated in your in your script writing. And then again, mm-hmm. this is this is all these are all techniques that will help you really, I guess, um, enhance your creative practice as as, as an artist. Um, so I, I would I would definitely say to explore them. Also, you could look at like relaxed performances um, and just have a, like a you know just a little bit of research. But I would say just do a little bit of research into the different types of uh, accessible forms, like you know captioning, BSL interpretation as well. Really, just look into them and find out okay what you know what is achievable. Um, but but, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's the best advice I could give for people that are just starting out. Hundred percent, and and also I would add to for theatre makers or performance makers to go to a relaxed performance and see what it's like, and to you know even even if you yourself as an individual don't need that level of access to see what where other people are going with it. I also think I mean I would just, on this topic I would just point towards um, Amy Leach's work at the Playhouse. I think that's one of the only because it's the example that I've seen of like the way that she embeds interpreters or deaf actors within the company. So it's not someone on the side of a stage just interpreting it. They are a fully fledged character within within the company. I think that's quite a new and innovative way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, like Rational Arts, like my company, we've been doing stuff like that for years, to be honest. Yeah. Um, we have, so for example, we just uh, did a production called Trust in Care. And even with Trust and Care, the audio description was available for everybody to hear through the speakers, um, not just through headsets. Um, And, you know, we had like a a blind trans uh, breaker as one of the lead characters. And we had like BSL interpreters where the BSL interpretation was embedded into the choreography and things. And like the audience got the opportunity to actually see how the audio description can be used as a means of navigation. Uh, and yeah, audio, really cool. for the blind performance for the blind performers as well um which again is, is something that a lot of a lot of uh, companies don't even realize that actually mm. it's done through the speaker so everybody can hear it's actually a great sophisticated it's one of the genius elements of audio description that again hasn't been tapped into enough um in terms of uh enhancing accessibility for blind and partially sighted uh, performers as well, as well to, to take part in shows. Um, but Does it become another character almost? In the th- it becomes another asset to use creatively? 100%. And, yeah, and it, it, it not only enhances accessibility for disabled audiences, but also for non-disabled audiences, you know? I mean, all of these are, you know, totally uh, val- valuable um, uh, forms of artistic interpretation in their own right be it the, the relaxed performance, be it the uh, the captioning, because uh, that can be done in super creative ways, be it the BSL interpretation, be it the audio description. You know, if you want to talk specifically about audio description, that can give even sighted audience members deeper insights into physical elements that they don't even realise um, is happening on the stage or have spe- specific significance within a, a production. Um, but, but yeah, there's there, there's so much. Like, all I'm saying is, if you actually take a genuine interest in accessibility and in terms of um, really exploring what it can bring to your artistic practice, uh, you will become 10,000 times a a better uh, artist, practitioner and creator. Just a quick one as well. It would mean the world if you could leave a review on the podcast. It really does help 
the podcast reach more people and that is the aim of this so relying on you to to do that for me thank you very much can we talk about special olympics that's that's cool yeah sure, sure. uh how did that happen what was that like okay um so the special olympics opening ceremony that came to sheffield in 2017 um and kind of like they they were looking for like an, an artistic director or slash creative director um and i was approached uh, for this role because obviously with such a ho- high profile um event as a special olympics uh there's not many people that have the expertise and the experience of being like an internationally performing artist um as well as working uh with with uh with people with um you know um neurological differences um at, at high levels but like i said right from the beginning of my career i was already working for example um you know in in sen schools and, and things so i'd already had like a wealth of experience within that and like i said i've done a lot of international performing and by that time i'd also been doing a lot of work within accessibility innovation so i guess i kind of like just must have been like the natural choice for them um so uh yeah so i became the artistic director of the special olympics and um i developed like a creative brief where i wanted to kind of like transform the i guess the expectations of what people with neurological differences are you know are are capable of because a lot of people's expectations are quite low um but i'm like mate y'all don't even realize like the genius (laughs) level that these cats work at like you know and like for example like certain things like um you know uh you know a lot of people with autism they're super precise you know, an aspect is like they're super, you know, super precise. So of course they could be incredible at being like a drumline and like and holding, you know, and holding rhythm and time, like you know, to, to a, within a split second, within a millisecond, like mm. timing is impeccable. Um, you have, you know, uh, people with Down syndrome, for example, a lot of, you know, a lot of them are super flexible, so they can make incredible dances. So an incredible physical facility uh, with, with, within within that as well, and and so. What I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of like really shine a light on these kind of like super abilities. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to put us in an arena of not just athletic events, but super events. Um, and so, for example, we, we had stuff like uh, instead of the um, the long jump, you had the, the longest front somersault on um, power stilts. Um, you know, we had, um, instead of the pole vault, we had like, um, you know, pole dances, you know, doing like pole performances on there or to the backdrop of a autistic drum line. Um, we, you know, we had, um, uh, like tricking, but in the form of a relay race. Um, so a lot of like, you know, tumbling and tricks and somersaults as, as, as a form of like a relay race rather than a regular running race. Um, you had uh, like martial artists, uh, you know, doing like a, like javelin, uh, but turn it into like staff spinning and, and things like that. Um, Kung fu, Kung fu yeah. memories again. So you had like all these elements. Like I was in charge of, I think it was over 250 uh, disabled uh, performers and, and paired them up with like non-disabled uh, companies. And, you know, for me, it was all about, not having the the non-disabled companies impose their choreography on the disabled performers but more about having them take inspiration 
um, from you know the disabled performers in terms of their skill set, what they can do, what their creativity is, and things uh, to ensure that they they had full ownership and they they really uh, shone in, in in the Special Olympics. Um, also, I had to choreograph uh, the procession of over two and a half thousand uh, neurologically um, uh, different uh, athletes uh, around the entire stadium. That was to an audience of like sixteen thousand people. Um, we had um, like uh, uh, people with neurological differences. They were DJing uh, the entire opening ceremony. They were doing that in like relays um, as, as well and things. So there was a, there was a lot of incredible stuff uh, that was happening in, in the opening ceremony. And yeah, that's crazy impressive. One question that comes to mind is: Do you ever get imposter syndrome? Like, do you ever feel like? <laughs> Like, do, do you do you have to deal with that at all, or do you? Are you? Because you um, seem quite confident and very. You've done all these different things. You've got mm, huge amount of talent. Do you ever kind of get a sense of like, oh, um, no, because I know my self worth. I guess like, um, when I started, you know, like I say, formally, okay, working within disability arts, obviously, like. With a lot of disability communities, there was a lot of skepticism. They were like, you know, this person's not even disabled. Why is he even, um, you know, trying to advocate for us or work with us? And quite rightly so, you know. Um, but once, you know, they they kind of like worked with me and understood the kind of like um, perspective of what I was coming at, you know, they actually realized that actually this guy's for real. Um, and, and, and and so they um, they kind of like realized that actually okay you know nathan he can bring potentially a, a, a different perspective and a, and a different demo, demographic um because like for example like like i said before i came from the background where it's like okay disability arts is cool but it's over there it's not something i really do and then all of a sudden it became super personal to me um and that's not because i i had any kind of like um connection with anybody that had a disability but it was basically through um, working on a, a production quite superficially at, at first where we was just imagine what it's like to be vision impaired. So we go around with our eyes closed, really superficially dancing. But my company member said to me, you do realize at any point of our lives, we can become visually impaired due to illness or injury or waking up the next morning, not being able to see or just by washing our face. And I wasn't emotionally prepared for that. Um, because I was like, well, what was happening if I was to wake up and I couldn't see? At the time, my daughter was like two, my, my two-year-old daughter. And I, I broke down in, in tears. And like for me, like I'm the kind of person, like if I'm afraid of something, I develop a curiosity about it. And so that's why I started to research um, a lot of the elements with regards to uh, visual impairment. And that's where it kind of like, I uncovered a lot of the unlikely links between hip hop and visual impairment. And that's where it became my life's work. So I know what it takes to go from somebody who didn't really have like an interest or a connection to it, to transform it to actually, I realized just how personal it is and how actually it impacts and infects every, you know, all of our lives. Um, so kind of like I can bring that kind of like perspective um, in terms of okay, getting people to understand the, the the shift in perspective to those that, for example, don't have any connection with disability. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Um, but but also, but because 
everything I've done has always been in consultation with people with disabilities right the way through. Um, you know, people, they kind of understand that actually this guy's for real um, because he actually, you know, really does his research. And in terms of imposter syndrome, in terms of just my work in general, um, like beyond accessibility, um, like when I was younger, I think in my in my in my twenties, I always, you know, wanted to 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 be at certain levels within my career, but you know, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to to be that or anything yet. But I think as time's gone on, I've realised my my true worth, and I'm kind of like I I understand, acknowledge, and accept myself as a human being and as an artist, and because I've been doing stuff for years, I'm like, yeah, I'm an expert at what I do. So I should be at the top, the top level in terms of everything that I, that I do. And it's that kind of belief that has led to me to get other, um, you know, other, other, I guess, high profile, um, working gigs. Um, I think what happens is a lot of people, they, they're scared to be confident because they're afraid of it being mistook for arrogance um but real talk like arrogance is if you're saying oh i'm better than you i'm better than you you know confidence is being able to celebrate yourself and be like Do you know what i am good enough and that's that's where where, I, where i'm at with, with with what i do super important really difficult though isn't it that that kind of shift i think the the thing for me was like after leaving uni the the fear was calling myself a director because I was like, well, I'm not, because I, I, you know, I haven't directed anything yet, professional, but it's like kind of putting your flag in the ground going, I am a director, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, definitely. And like there's, you know, there's there's power in uncertainty. Um, you know, me and a friend of mine, we have a saying where we say, uh, let's, let's tolerate uncertainty. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that leads you to some incredible places. And... I think a lot of people, they have that imposter syndrome because things are uncertain when they enter into new territory. And and because they've never been there before, they think, well, am I good enough or I shouldn't be here doing doing this? Mm. But you have every right to be there and, you know, every right to be doing Because even if you haven't done something, you have every right to gain experience and knowledge and gain those opportunities to get to the point where, you know, you're where you want to be. Everybody um, has has the right to to do that and so yeah just take those steps you know tolerate uncertainty put yourself on that journey and you'll realize that you know from when you start telling people what to do in terms of like in, in terms of a theatrical context you're a director <laughs> you know what I mean? so you know within that kind of thing so if you have a, an artistic vision in terms of okay you know i i feel i can direct these actors to do you know x y or z or I know what I want to happen with, with lighting or any kind of artistic setting within that, then, you know, you, you're, you're a director. Um, yeah. Just because it may be your first time out doesn't make you any less of a director. That's true. The, the thing that I always go back to is something um, a friend told me about because they, they were working on a film set and they were saying something like, oh, this is my, like, I think they were even working on 1917, you know, the, the war film. Mm-hmm. And the director there is Sam Mendes, isn't it? The director, mm-hmm. um, and it was something stupid like it was Sam Mendes's sixth or seventh film. I don't, I can't, I don't know the exact number, but for my friend, it was her twentieth or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just the realization that everyone, everyone else in that team 
is working on their films and it's in double figures, but the director, the, the person supposedly at the top in inverted commas, you know, in terms of experience, has got the least yeah. and actually relies on all these other people. So, so I think that's the kind of light bulb moment for me of like, oh, actually, it might be your first, but it, it's your producer's fifth, it's the actor's yeah. 19th, whatever it is. Mm, definitely. Cool. Um, lastly, then, I want to ask you about um, your advice to freelancers at the moment and kind of, um, I mean, I think it would make sense to talk about people interested in dancing and all performers, especially. You must get this quite a lot, but what what have you? What should I be doing if I want to get into that as a kind of, if if that's my burning desire? But I'm thinking my parents may be telling me it's not a proper job, or like get a real job, or go to uni. But like, what what are you, what's your um, <laughs> what's your what's your advice for that? Oh gosh, like I used to get that from my mom a lot. Like, yeah, it's great what you do, but when are you gonna get a proper job? And like, I just say to her when I stop earning. Uh, in two or three hours what you do in a day um and then that would kind of like just cut that conversation dead <laughs> um but like real talk if you if you if you're just starting out you want to be as entrepreneurial as possible uh get out of your mindset struggling artist um because if you have that as a as a mindset you will always be a struggling artist nice um, you know, if you have in your mindset, you know, I'm an artist of of abundance um, and I deserve abundance, then that's the kind of energy that you'll attract. Um, whereas if you have the struggling mindset, then you'll always be struggling. Um, oh, I, I would say so. Look at, you know, different different ways, for example, in terms of sustainability it can be tricky as an artist to, you know, be self-sustainable. And that's why it's important to be entrepreneurial. Um, just so you can find new and innovative ways to generate income. Um, what was that for you? Um, back to kind of... Yeah, so for, for me, it was offering my services outside of the art sector. Um, because real talk, if you're an artist and you stay within the art sector, you've got... 10,000 other experts that are doing exactly the same thing as you. Whereas you venture out into other sectors like um, corporate sectors or even like, you know, sciences and, and things like that. Um, you're, you don't have 10,000 people to compete against. All of a sudden you're the expert. Um, you're, you're the only expert and you can, you can charge five, 10 times more, you know, um, than what you would do if you were in the art sector being a struggling artist. Um, so I would say, uh, yeah, really get out, you know, get out of your comfort zone and really explore other sectors and not only the art sector, because, you know, with the art sectors, the rate, the rates aren't great. Let's be real. Um, and, and so, you know, it can be, for example, that because a lot of the time I would, you know, work outside of that sector, um, make higher rate, you know, get higher rates. And then I'd, I'd put that back into my company mm. and, for example, so then I would then utilize that income to create the passion works, the works that I really want to create and things like that. Um, yeah. And that's kind of like how I became like self-sustainable rather than only relying on funding applications and arts council applications and stuff like that, especially now because it's super, super competitive now, all, the, all yeah, those things. Really um, and yeah, 
so I would also say don't um don't just wait for funding to make work. Um, Interesting. Because if you have um a, a burning passion and an idea that needs to happen, make it happen. It may not be happening in the finished product like for example, if you want a massive ensemble huge production values you may not be able to do that straight away but that doesn't mean you can't still make that work happen mm. um and it may be at first maybe just a, a, a one man or one woman show that you're working on in order to get to that stage but if you if you start making that now what then happens is you can then create that promotional material that can help you get that funding or can help you get investment to get you um to the level that you you want you want to be at um but but for me yeah i'd always have like artistic ideas and concepts i couldn't wait for funding it was just burning inside me so much that energy i just needed to get it out um and yeah that that was how i was was, was able to do it and you know like i said i haven't had another job um apart from the art since i <laughs> since i became an artist when i left university um you know and even if you want to look at that career route I never formally studied acting or anything like that. And now I run two theater venues. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I got a lot of my skills on the job. Um, you know, I was the associate artist at Yorkshire dance. So I learned about contemporary art and dance, you know, within that kind of, uh, context, I learned, you know, how to make hip hop theater with John ZD. Um, I learned how to, you know, make, uh, you know, cut theater with Sonia Sabri when I toured internationally. Um, you know, I've had I've had lots of different opportunities in a very career pathway, but a lot of that was on on the on the job. I mean, I mean, when I was, I didn't even know you could do like dance degrees and, and theatre degrees. You know, otherwise I would have done them instead of doing you know H and D in business and marketing. But I will, <laughs> I will say, doing that stood me in good stead because you know up until like a few years ago, conservatoires weren't even teaching people how to write invoices. So it's like, yeah, you can teach people to make genius choreography, but if they don't know how to write a simple invoice, they're not going to understand how to get paid. Yeah, it's the um, business side is so important as well, isn't it? Being an entrepreneur. Yeah. If you're a sole artist, you're still, you're effectively a sole trader, aren't you? Effectively. So. 100, 100%. And that's why, like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of artists that think, oh, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to be entrepreneurial. I don't want to think of it in terms of money and, and, and business. And that's fine. That's okay if you don't want to think of it like that. But real talk you will find it difficult to um be self-sustainable and only do art if you don't look at what you offer as either a product or a service um you know and it sounds like you're dehumanizing it but you're not because you know the humanness will always be there because you're the artist mm. and it comes from your soul um but once you understand your your art form and how to kind of like um present it as a as a product or service to different audiences then all of a sudden you'll realize that oh my gosh i actually don't just have a show i have a show that can have merchandise that can you know i can also you know have different products that i can sell off of that you know you can have training schemes you can you know sell video files audio files for what it is that you're doing there's lots of elements that you that that you can that you can tell you realize oh actually you know i've utilized my art to help me with my emotional well-being so i can even sell that as a as, as a package and sell that to corporates because there's a big disjoint between like you know um you know the, the corporate sector 
and you know being able to you know to connect and and process their their emotions whereas us artists we're experts at that so there's real mileage and value in terms of looking your art looking at your art form within 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 that context too yeah and also even if it's not a corporate even if it's you know you're you're a dancer and also a yoga instructor or if you're a actor and also a singing teacher those are skills you're building to your repertoire and will influence the you know the real art in the inverted commas you know it's like you're, you're you're just adding strings to your bow aren't you you're going to be a better dancer if you also teach yoga 100 percent. it just makes sense right yeah um, yeah, yeah. Most, most definitely it's kind of fired me up there i'm like okay what, what, what else can i offer <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah i will i will i will say for for every artist out there listen to your authentic self mm. it's super important to listen to your authentic self because there'll be so many people that will say what are you doing that for you're not going to get funding doing that or you know that's that's not good right now but in all honesty like things happen in cycles and so you'll have people that will follow trends and fashions and they'll always be current but they'll never be remembered and so if you can acknowledge that okay I'll be out of fashion for for quite a long time but when I'm in fashion because I've listened to my authentic self I'm going and there's nobody else doing what I do I'm going to be the best at what I do and I'm going to be remembered for it and within that way, and then that's how you will be able to make yourself become more sustainable um, when 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 your when your time comes around. So just be ready for that. But really listen to your authentic self because I know along my journey, you know, people will say, "Why are you doing that? That's played out," or like, you know, that's just a fad. And now a lot of stuff I do is not in the industry leading, but it's world class. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like I said, like I've, I've I've had partnerships with like you know people like like I say with the Olympics with like Marvel, um, you know places like that, and that's because you know I listened to my authentic self and I didn't follow trends, and so everybody has has something valuable to offer within listening to the authentic self. Just quiet in that outside chatter, and uh, you'll be onto some incredible things. Awesome advice. Thank you so much for your time, Nathan. It's been unbelievable. I, I, it's fired me up. I'm I'm gonna stop this and I'm gonna go and <laughs> do some uh, some soul searching. It's great. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful for your honesty and insight. It's been great. Oh, brilliant. Thanks for having me. Much love.